0: Well, it's been a pretty good day. A lot of good, good food. (laughs) And now, you're probably tired and full and sleepy. So, uh, we'll try not to talk too long this afternoon. But I do believe what we have prepared to study this afternoon is worth our time. We finished this morning... Uh, by ending with the question, does God's word change? And I think that has a very obvious answer. But you know, the, the other question that was asked me a while back was, why are there so many divisions in Christianity? And I'll just go ahead and tell you uh, how that came about. I was visiting with a young man who identified himself as an atheist. And uh, during the course of our discussion, he asked me a question. I was a little bit surprised by the question But he said, how is it that millions of people who all read the same book believe and practice different things? And I said, you know what? That is an excellent question. That's an excellent question. You know, the short answer... (laughs) I guess the number one answer, not like we're playing the feud or anything, but you want to know why there's so many divisions in Christianity? Because people don't act spiritual and they fight with one another and sometimes they bicker and that contention causes division. But that's not the only reason why there's the division we see in the religious world. That's just one reason. Another reason is what we talked about this morning. People have different approaches when they go to the book. The book doesn't say different things, and sometimes you may hear people say, Well, that's what it means to you. <laughs> but to me, it means well, friends, that's not a good approach. We recognize this morning that God has given us the tools to go into his word and to look at his word and to draw out truth and rightly divide that word of truth by using the methods that he has prescribed. And we're going to look at some specifics and and we're not going to take a lot of time to look at each one. We just kind of want to introduce the idea. And I made a statement this morning that the Bible is not always 100% literal. And I'm glad nobody threw rocks before I was able to... Uh, sort of explain what I meant by that. And so we want to talk about some literary devices later in our study and finally some blessings from the Word. But first I want to look at different ways that people approach Scripture. You know, during the, uh, the first century, the church was instituted. It was instituted by God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, as we noticed this morning, to guide the apostles into all truth. And those men that were guided by the Holy Spirit... They began to go through and set up congregations of the Lord's church. And in those congregations, they would tell them how they were to conduct their assemblies, how they were to live their life. And they gave them instructions. And over time, there was men who, men who came in, were men who came in, and they corrupted the doctrine that God had given to the apostles. And things started to change. For one thing, authority became an issue, and it didn't start out that way, But and, and bishops, I will tell you, bishop is another word for elder in the scriptures, and that is a scriptural concept, but what they did was they changed that to where there wasn't a, a plurality of bishops that would oversee one congregation. You'd have one man overseeing several congregations. Well, that's how you think of a bishop. Then you'd have... What's called an archbishop, and think of it as a, there's a man who would oversee all of the churches in whatever, Potter or Randall County. Then you'd have the cardinal. maybe he would preside over the entire state of Texas. And then you had papal authority, which they stated was the head of the church. Do you think that changed things? Sure did. Because you know, with power comes corruption. And with corruption comes more corruption. And pretty soon there was a div- dividing line among God's people where there were people who were just regular people and then there were people who were special people and you had clergy and laity. Now the Bible teaches we're all priests. 1 Peter chapter 2.9 says we're all priests. That if we're saints of God, we're all priests. But they made a distinction and that caused more problems. And then you had men who came in and decided that when you committed a sin, the best thing for you to do was to pay for that sin in some way, whether it was some amount of good works that you dedicated to the church or it was some amount of money that you gave to the church or you went and did these acts and they called it penance. Then there was a man named John Tetzel who was very influential in raising money for the church. And this man was pushing what was called indulgences. And basically an indulgence was you could go make a payment for a future sin. So let's just say that someone wants to go out and party on the weekend. Well, they could go Wednesday or Monday, whenever, and they could say, I'm going to go out this weekend and I'm going to get hammered. How much is that going to cost me? He'd give you monetary amount. Instrumental music became a practice, and you know, at first, they began to use an instrument to push a button, give a note, so you'd know what key you were singing in. Everybody would sing well, then it turned into instrumental music, and that was another practice that came into the church. There was also what was called lay investiture, and the best way for me to explain this would, would be this. Let's say that someone here in Canyon, a very wealthy man, decided to come into this congregation And he said, you know what, I'd like to be an elder here. What do I need to do to be an elder? Well, I know this congregation wouldn't do it, but congregations in that time would say, okay, well, you have to have this much money. And he would buy the office of bishop. Or he may come in and take over the land where the church was, and he'd lord over it as well. That was lay investiture. Can you see the corruption that would come in as all of these things were being implemented in the church? You know, when you read about the Reformation, the Restoration period, that's what you had. You had men that were looking at this model and they were saying, you know what, this is not right. And it turned the church into something unrecognizable. And you know, there were men who decided what we need to do is reform this corrupted church. And we can stand back and we can criticize their methods all we want. But before we do that, I want to say something about these men. I believe some of these men had great courage to stand in the face of death and say, you know what, what you're teaching is not right. Because at that time when you challenged papal authority, you could be killed and many people were. But there were men that were influential during this time. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, among the other men. And they made the decision, we need to reform. Now they weren't trying to start a whole bunch of different churches. They just wanted to fix the problems that were in the church at that time. And so they said, you know what? The first thing that needs to go is penance and indulgences because we are saved through faith, by God's grace. And so they got rid of the penances and indulgences. They said papal authority is not right. They got rid of that. They got rid of lay investiture. But there were things that stayed there. Practices that were not in the model... We're left over. You know why? Because when you reform something, the only thing you can do is look at it and say, all right, whatever we think is corrupt, let's get rid of it. And if it doesn't look corrupt, let's just leave it alone. So their approach was, look, if the Bible doesn't specifically prohibit it, why get rid of it? Just leave it there. That's the idea of reforming, okay? Okay. There's another approach to scripture when it comes to authority, the idea of restoration. And that's the idea of, you know what, let's not try to reform that which is corrupt. Let's just start from scratch and build upon the foundation using God's word, build from the ground up. Let's restore New Testament Christianity. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. We've made an effort to restore New New Testament Christianity. But we haven't been perfect. Perfect. And restoration is a process. We need to continue to move toward restoring New Testament Christianity. Don't get complacent and think we've got it all perfect. It's all finished. No, we need to keep restoring. This is the biblical model that God's given us. One of the greatest doctrinal issues that we have that's causing division today is which testament has authority? Now that's a strange question to some. They might say, well, I don't even know what that means. Well, God gave a law to Moses. We looked at that the other night. And a lot of people today will go back and look at that law and say, well, you know what? You can't do that because look at what the law of Moses says. Or someone will say, well, you know, I do this because that's what David did or or that's what... uh, you know, that's what was written along Moses. That's why we do this particular thing. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to talk about a couple of scriptures. In Colossians 2.14, here the Bible says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, I wish we had time to go spend on this chapter and really look at it in detail, but I just want to look at the words we've got underlined. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. What is handwriting of ordinances? Now we understand what blotting out is, don't we? That means to erase something. Okay? You do away with it. Some translations render this passage He canceled the record of debt that was against us. I will tell you, I'd reject that translation because it's nowhere in the text to say it has anything to do with a debt. There's two Greek words that are translated into handwriting and ordinances. One of them is the word chirographon and it. it means handwriting. That's a big shocker, isn't it? <laughs> handwriting. We know what handwriting is, don't we? Something written down. Then there's the word ordinances, which is translated from the Greek word, and you're going to be familiar with this Greek word because you've heard it. It's the Greek word dogma. It means a law, whether civil, ceremonial, or ecclesiastical, a law, a decree. What was blotted out? Written law. Well, what written law? Moses' written law. Ephesians chapter 2, in like manner, he says, Having abolished, that means to do away with, just like blotted out, in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Why? For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. You know, a lot of people have said, well, well, these ordinances, he was talking about pharisaical ordinances and traditions and writings. of the. No, he wasn't. He gives us the purpose for blotting out the law right here in verse 15 of Ephesians 2 so he could make of two one new man. Why did Jesus blot out the law? Why was it nailed to the cross? Because he didn't want just the Jews to be God's people. He wanted all nations, just like the promise God gave to Abraham, to be blessed through the cross of Christ. If he had not blotted out the law, then Gentiles would have never been brought into the church. He had to do away with the law so Jew and Gentile could be brought together in one body. If the law still existed, that could not be accomplished. And you and I, unless you can trace your lineage back, could not identify yourself as God's people. He had to blot it out. Hebrews 9 and verse 16, he says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. This is a concept we understand because a lot of people have what's called a will and testament. And in that will and testament there's certain rules that apply to that. You know, if, if I made the decision, well, you know what, I've got, I've got a lot of guns and, you know, Brad, he might like guns, so I'll just write Brad in my will. He can come to my house and he can have all of my firearms. Well, if he shows up at my door in a couple days and starts loading my guns up, I'm going to chase him. Like, what are you doing? Well, I saw you wrote my name down. You said I could have your guns. Yeah, in my will. But a will is not a force, it's of no strength at all as long as the testator of that will lives. And so, until I'm dead, he couldn't get the guns. That's the same concept that he's teaching here in Hebrews. That the New Testament became a force not at the birth of Jesus, not during his life, but at his death. Everything from the time that God gave the law to Moses... Until the death of Jesus was the Old Testament, that is, the law of Moses. Everything on the other side of the death of Jesus is the New Testament, friends. And when Jesus died, it says that in his flesh or by his death, he abolished and slew the enemy. He nailed it to the cross. He blotted it out. It's abolished. Someone says, well, it's still there. We can go read it. Well, that's not what he means. He means it's authority. No, it hasn't been erased. But now the New Testament is a force. Someone says, well, why do we have the Old Testament? Why has it been preserved? Because, friends, it was written for our learning. It wasn't just a record of Israel's history. It was written for our learning, for whatever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we go back and we read all of this. And you know what? We understand. We talked and mentioned about types and shadows. You know, You think about types and shadows. Did the people in the Old Testament understand those types and shadows? They sure didn't. You know why? Because they didn't see the image. But we have seen the image. We've seen God's plan in motion. We have seen the cross of Jesus Christ. We can look back and learn from those shadows. They were written for us, not just for Israel. But their authority, as far as the law of Moses is concerned, does not apply to us. We don't follow the law of Moses. Let's talk about some of these literary devices. You know, one of the things that Jesus used in his teaching was parables. And the reason Jesus would use parables is because it, was, it made it easier for people to understand his message. Because he would take everyday concepts and he would apply those in a spiritual way. Now, there was a secondary purpose for speaking parables. And his disciples came to him, I believe it was in Matthew chapter 13, and they said, why do you speak in parables? And he said, because unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But he said, unto them it's not given because they've closed their ears, because they've shut their eyes. What did he mean by that? Well, when he would give these parables, some people would hear the parable, but they wouldn't understand it. But the people that really wanted the spiritual meat would hear it and discern it. Jesus would say, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a woman which hid leaven in three measures of meal until the whole was leaven. Now, the parables were given to people who would understand his message. He wasn't teaching about how to make bread. He was teaching a concept about bread that would help us understand the nature of the kingdom. He might say the kingdom of God is likened to a mustard seed, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But he says it grows up into a tree. And the the birds come and they roost there. They make refuge in this tree. And the people that heard the parable that were searching for spiritual truth would hear his message and discern it. Can we understand those concepts about making bread? Sure. We can understand that. He taught a lot of different concepts like that. And parables are a placing beside. They're not... He wasn't teaching that the kingdom was bread. He wasn't teaching that it was seed. He's saying it was like that. It was similar to that. Figurative language. I use I wanted to use a couple examples we have in our songs. Because, you know, I... I was talking to a guy one day and he said, did you ever notice that the song when the roll is called up yonder says on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ arise? I said, well, yeah, I've noticed that. And he said, Revelations chapter 1 and 7 says, behold, he comes with the clouds. What do you think about that? And I thought about it a minute and I said, do you think that the purpose of the songwriter was to teach the doctrine of no clouds? He said, well, probably not. I said, well, what would you think of if you thought of a cloudless day? What's a cloudless day? It's a day where the sky is bright and blue and the sun's shining. It's a wonderful day. It's figurative language. It's it's an analogy. It's a metaphor. He's not trying to teach that there's going to be no clouds when Jesus returns. Sometimes we get a bit little bit on too far on the side of literal, and we throw you know the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and we miss the point. There's another song that I really like in our book When God Shut Noah in the grand old ark. Can you finish the phrase? He put a rainbow in the cloud. Did that happen? Sure it did. I remember reading about it. He put that rainbow up there. Why? As a sign that God had now made a covenant that he would not destroy the world by water. But then you get down to verse 3 or 4 and it says, when they put old Daniel in the lion's den, God put a rainbow in the cloud. I don't remember that. I don't think there was a rainbow in the story of Daniel. You say, well, those aren't biblical concepts. No, it's figurative language. You say, well, I don't like figurative language. Well, you better get used to it if you're going to study the Bible because... There's a lot of figurative language in the Scriptures. Not just in the prophecies and the visions and in the dreams, but sometimes in just regular stories and teachings. Mark chapter 10.38, James and John had come to Jesus and they said, Hey, grant us that one of us can sit on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. You know what Jesus said? You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, was Jesus saying, guys, do you have the physical ability to reach down with your hand and pick up a drinking vessel and physically drink out of it with your mouth like I do? Is that what he was asking? No, because they could do that, obviously. He was talking about a different kind of cup. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says of Christ, he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He was telling James and John, look, it's not your lot to do what I'm going to do. And so for me to give you what I'm going to receive is not mine to give. It was figurative language, but he used a cup to describe it. This isn't the only place that a cup is used in a figurative manner. In Luke 22 and 17, he says he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. You know, there's been a lot of debate and argument about this word cup. Is it literal? Is it figurative? Well, I'll just ask you a question. Jesus said, take this cup and divide it amongst yourselves. Now, here's a cup. Now, how are you going to divide that? Is that what Jesus was telling them? Hey, take this cup and break it in pieces and keep yourself a souvenir. What were they going to do with that cup? You know, they were eating the Passover. You know what they did at the Passover? They sat down and ate a meal. And they all had drinking vessels. And Jesus said, take this cup and divide it amongst yourselves. Brethren, I believe they divided it amongst themselves. What did they divide? They divided the contents of the cup, not the actual vessel itself. Now, they probably didn't use the little small communion cups like we use, but they divided the contents and they partook of it. It was a figurative cup. It wasn't saying one vessel. Whatever was divided is what they took. Proverbs Proverbs are not meant to be a mathematical equation. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. They're not meant to be cause, effect, result. Two, two, four. Okay? You say, what do you mean by that? What I'm saying is they're not absolute truths. You say, well, hold on now. Don't say that. No, stay with me. Proverbs are wise sayings. They're sayings about life. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And so, if we see someone depart, we say, Well, it was the parents' fault, obviously. They didn't train this person, because the Bible says, If you train, did it say, If you train a child? He said, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, well, when is that? When he's old? Is that 39? (laughs) Is it 60? Is it 90? When he's old, he will not depart from it. He's not trying to teach who's accountable. You know what he's teaching you? What he's teaching me? If you want your children to grow up and serve God, train them. Train your children. It's a wise saying. Here's another one Proverbs 17 18. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becomes surety in the presence of a friend. In case those words escape you, what he's saying is if you co sign for a loan, you are a fool. When I was 18 years old, I did not have a job. But I did have a pickup. You know why? Because we drove out here when it used to be Midway Chevrolet. And my dad got me a brand new Chevrolet short wide pickup. Dale Earnhardt edition had the red and white stripe down it. And it was beautiful. And he co-signed for the loan because I had no credit or money. And he paid every single payment. When I was 23, he co-signed on another loan for me. And I paid every single dime. So which time was he a fool? Well, both times because the proverb says that's not the point. The point is, don't co-sign on a loan. You know why? Because credit, creditors know if people are going to pay their loan. They've already deemed you unworthy to receive a loan. You're not going to pay it. That's what they're saying. So if you go and co-sign on a loan, and you end up paying for that loan, Proverbs 17, 18. (laughs) It's not a mathematical equation, friends. It's a wise saying, and we ought to heed what it says. Every one of them, we ought to heed what they say. You want to learn about life? Go to the Proverbs. You want to learn about relationships? Go to the Proverbs. You want to learn about money? Go to the Proverbs. Proverbs. You learn how not to be angry? Go to the Proverbs. They teach us how to live. Poetry. I use this because it's familiar to everyone. And we recognize poetry by rhyme scheme, don't we? By the cadence of the words. Ham and ham, boat and goat, house and mouse. Well, there's poetry that exists in scriptures. No, it's not like our modern day poetry where you have the, the rhyming words. But there is poetry. They would say things in a rhyming way where they would rhyme the thoughts of something. Job is one particular book that uses a great deal of poetry, and even people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired regard Job as one of the most beautifully written pieces of literature that is in existence. Job, in describing his sorrow, believing that God had done these things to him, and wrongly so, God did not do them, but him trying to describe this pain said these words, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The tares of God are arrayed against me. Now did Job think that God had sent someone there to shoot him with an arrow? Literally? No. He's just trying to express what has happened to him in his life. And so he says, I've been shot with an arrow. And then he goes on to say, it's not just any arrow, it's poison. And my spirit drinks it in. He said, not only that, God's archers are just lined up and they are firing one after another. It's poetry. He's saying the same thing but expressing it in different ways. And in fact, in this, he's progressing with what he's saying. It's beautiful yet sorrowful but beautiful. But he's not teaching that God shot him with an arrow. So when I say that not everything's literal all the time, that's what we mean. There are literary devices that exist. So when is it literal? The scriptures are always literal unless the context demands otherwise or other precepts demand otherwise. And I want to talk just for a moment, a brief moment about context. The most important thing for us to understand when we open up God's word is context. Context. What is context? I'll give you an example. I saw a picture of a guy one time. He had crazy eyes. And at the top of it, it said, all your friends are going to die. And I thought, well, good grief. And then at the bottom, it said, when they see your new ring. (laughs) Well, that kind of changed things. Because at one moment, we've got a potential mass murder on our hands. But now we've got a guy that bought his wife something that everyone's going to admire for. See, context matters. Understanding a phrase in its context matters. Context. Who is talking? Who is being addressed? This is so important. Whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, we need to understand who is speaking. For instance, the book of Job. You have a discussion between five men. Job, Eliphaz, Bildad... Zophar and Elihu, they all spoke in the book. And at times it wasn't Job speaking, it was one of the other people. And you know what? What they said was not inspired. Now it's an inspired record of what those men said, but sometimes people will go pull those statements out of Job and say, this is how God operates. No, because at the end of the book God said those guys were wrong. It matters who's talking. It matters who wrote the book matters who it's being written to. It matters when it was written. You know, if you read a statement during the Mosaical Dispensation and you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the statement. Was it written during that time? Was it written during the time of Judges when Israel had Judges? Was it written during the monarchy? Was it written during the Vatican? It matters. So we need to just at least understand when these things were written. And especially in the New Testament, we need to understand why a book was written. We call them books. They were letters. Would you go into the middle of a letter that your grandmother wrote you and start reading in the middle? You might think Granny's crazy before you finish that letter. Because she may have said something at the first of the letter and then referred back to you. What is she talking about? The New Testament wasn't written with chapters and verses. Now, it's good for us because we can go straight to them. It's easy to get there because they're numbered off that way. But they were written as an entire letter. We looked at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and we examined it the other night. You know what, if you look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, understanding who the Ephesians were and why Paul wrote to the Ephesians and read chapter 1 and understand why he wrote the book, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 sounds different than when you just read it by itself. Context matters. Someone says, well, you know, I don't see the point in taking all this time to examine the Bible. I mean, I know what's right. And I know what's wrong. And friend, if that's the only way that you look at the Bible, you're going to miss out on some tremendous blessings. If you're just looking at it to know what's right and know what's wrong, you're going to miss a lot of things. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Yes, it matters what's right and wrong. And David said, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I wouldn't sin. James chapter 1, 21 says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, this is the first part of this concept, this verse. What does he say? Cut off sin. Cut it off. We think that's the end all, right? We've become a Christian. We're going to stop sinning, and everything's going to be fine. Behavior modification. Can you teach a dog to sit? You can teach him to roll over. You can teach him to shake. You can teach him to lay down. I've seen some dogs that you can teach incredible things to. I mean, they'll dance around and hop around and balance bounce a ball on their nose. They'll do all kinds of things. But you know what you can't teach a dog? You can't teach a dog how not to be a dog. He's always going to be a dog because he's a dog. Friends, we're not dogs. God's not just interested in teaching us to sit. He's not just interested in teaching us to modify our behavior. It's not just about stopping sinning. That's the first part. Stop sinning. But look at the second part. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. We'll talk about engrafting in a moment. I want to notice this idea. See, man is born with a fleshly nature, and he talks about this several times in the New Testament. We have a fleshly nature, and that fleshly nature makes us gravitate towards sin. And when we gravitate towards sin, we gravitate away from God and towards self. This is the nature of man. At one time, everyone has this nature. What God wants to do is not change our behavior. He wants to change who we are. He wants us to become spiritual. To have a different nature. Not a, well, that's wrong. Because it's wrong. Friends, if you develop a spiritual nature with a focus upon who you are in Jesus Christ... You'll be transformed. He says in Romans 12 and 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformation, he talks about. What is transformation? It's like metamorphosis. It's like when this ugly little caterpillar crawls into a cocoon and comes out a beautiful butterfly. Completely different. Transformation. Now, if you want to conform to the world, you can do that really easy. Because you're already flesh and you already have a fleshly nature. If you want to conform to the world, you can make very little effort and you'll do that. Transformation, on the other hand, is totally different. It takes effort. You know why? Because you have to change who you are. Renew the mind. When the unclean spirit is got out of a man... He walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return to my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. This wasn't just about demon possession. It was about sin. It was about this idea of having this nature. And friends, a lot of times we come to the Lord, He forgives us our past, we stop trying to sin, but we go back into sin. You know why? Because we don't fill it up. Because when you cut off sin, all you do is leave yourself empty. That's why so many people relapse. That's why they go back to those life-dominating sins because they don't put something there. And that's what he's talking about in James 1. In grafting the Word of God. Grafting. Now, I don't know what kind of trees these are, so we're just going to pretend. Okay? Let's just say that this is an orange tree. And they cut off the branch of this orange tree and they took a branch from an apple tree and they grafted it into this orange tree. You know what this branch will then produce? Someone says, well oranges, it's an orange tree. No, it'll produce apples. Apples. Yeah, but by nature, it's an orange tree. That's right. He's changed the nature by grafting it in. Well, that's exactly what the Word of God will do. It won't just change what you do, it'll change who you are. It'll take man, fleshly man, who has a sinful nature, and he'll produce the fruits of righteousness. The Word of God changes not just behavior, but lives, it'll change your mind. Change your view. But a lot of times it's just our attitude. David said, I've not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, some of you are diabetic, and so you don't count. But some of you aren't dessert people. And people like me, I don't understand people like you. I love dessert, and I don't need it, but I love it. And there's a few things in this world that when I see it, I have to have it. We had decided yesterday would be the day that I ate banana pudding, and that would be my, well, I ate it again today. <laughs> because when there's banana pudding and where there's coconut cream pie, and I'm not talking about, you know, the stuff with Cool Whip. I mean the meringue toasted, it's great. And you know what? I see it in my mouth waters. I've got to have it. It's good. Is there something you could think of that when you see it, you desire it like that? David said, God, your word's like that. It tastes so good. It's sweeter than honey. I desire it. No, it's not like eating Brussels sprouts. It's sweet to my taste. Is that how you look at God's Word? You desire it. And when you take it in, it's good. See, a lot of how God's Word affects us starts right here. How we look at God's Word. Is it a set of grievous commandments? No. It's the words of life that the inner man hungers for and longs for. And it's not just about reading. And it's not just about memorizing Scripture. It's about taking those Scriptures, receiving them with meekness and submission. It's about making them a part of who you are and then doing it. That's the blessing that comes from the Word. He said, through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. You know what, my grandmother was here last night, and I'll just say this, I'm biased, I know I am, but I've never met a more godly, pious woman than Murtis Jones. I just haven't. And I remember when we were kids, I, gr- I was growing up in their house, and you know, we're six or seven years old, and the television's on, and, and we watched, you know, the cheers and you know night court the old shows and every now and again a commercial would come on it'd be like a Victoria's Secret ad or something and she's not an athletic woman but she'd about hurdle over a couch trying to get to that remote to change that channel and we just saw you know old granny you know why she did that because she hated sin she did she hated sin she still does because she loved God's Word. It wasn't that she hated people. She didn't like sin. Because she had developed herself into a spiritually minded person. Now, that's very different from a lot of us, isn't it? Because sometimes we, we, have, we have a lot of struggles with sin and we want to gravitate towards sin. Well, Listen, it's time to change the nature. The only way you're going to do that is to get in God's Word. What is leading you? You know, light's very important. Light only has one purpose it's so the eye can see. A lot of people walk in darkness, they don't have much direction, they're just walking. But you know what? When you walk in darkness, not only do you not see the obstacles in front of you, you also don't see yourself. And, friends, God's Word is like a lamp. A lamp under your feet, it'll show you where you're at. And it'll guide you and show you where to go. So the final thing I want to say to you today is what is leading you in life? Is it the daily grind? Is that what you focus on all week long? Oh, I know, we need to focus. Especially if you're running power tools. But friends, we need to be focused on God Upon His Word all the time. Listen, Bible study does not stop when the book closes. What would probably do us more good than reading a chapter every night is read a few verses and just ponder on them. Close the book. Ponder. Meditate. Then meditate the rest of the week. Think and focus on God's Word and it will change your life. We offer one more invitation at the end of this meeting. If you're in need of Jesus Christ, He is awaiting for you. If you're not a Christian here today and you'd like to become one, we want to assist you in that. If you're a child of God here today, we invite you to come as well. Come and have a seat as we stand and sing.